Good morning. In the early hours of Monday, two earthquakes of 7.8 and 7.5 magnitude struck in Turkey and Syria. Ishmael Al-Abdullah spoke on Monday's News at One from his home in Syria. I survived, but my neighbours didn't survive. Just a few metres from my, my house, there were 15 people were killed. I didn't have that. Then I moved to, this, uh, to other buildings. I saw five buildings beside each other collapsed. Also on the news at one, Turkey's ambassador to Ireland, Mahmoud Hakan Alkay. You cannot over-exaggerate the devastation that took place because 10 cities are affected. Pretty much the whole of southeast of, of Turkey is affected. It's an earthquake of such a magnitude that we have not had one in recorded history that I can remember of. Two major earthquakes on the same day and around 258 aftershocks since ongoing, so it's a major devastation. And this for a region that has experienced so much in the last few years. On Monday's drive time, Borazu Daragahi, international correspondent with The Independent. The death toll is continuing to rise every hour, really. It, it, it seems like the death toll is rising. I know you've been speaking to people in both Turkey and Syria. What do we know at this stage about the damage caused? Well, I mean, this is really a, a story of two parallel tragedies. On the one hand, you have a kind of a middle income uh, a developing country in Turkey uh, that is basically, you know, very highly urbanized um, with lots of uh, 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 kind of quickly built buildings that collapsed uh, and, and yet still a lot of resources, a lot of tools, a lot of transportational and uh, uh, rescue workers and rescue equipment and so on. And then on the other hand, you have the, the tragedy in northern Syria, uh, which is a, a region of the world that has basically just gone through one of the most horrific wars in recent history. The war has yet to uh, end, really. Um, and uh, this is just tragedy upon tragedy. Uh, 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 we've seen terrible images, for example, in uh, one video I saw an infant was pulled out of the rubble. Uh, the infant lived, but the mother that just gave birth to the child passed away. Um, there are people using their hands uh, to try to dig out their loved ones as they cry. Uh, this is just a, a, a you know, really, really horrible tragedy for both people. Much of the new construction, the shoddy new construction in towns like Gaziantep and Kilis um, is, is built, has been built in the last few years very quickly and very poorly, I might add, to house the Syrian refugees. So this is, yes, this is absolutely a, a just a horrendous tragedy on both sides. And the impact of the devastation was shocking. On Tuesday's News at One, Turkey correspondent for The Economist, Pyotr Zalewski in Antakya. Uh, so I'm on the outskirts of Antakya, which is a city in uh, southern Turkey, close to the Mediterranean coast, um, where the damage from the earthquake has um, seemingly been the heaviest. Um, I was previously in Adana, which is a city of about 1.7 million, uh, also in the south. And in Adana, there were quite a few buildings that have that were destroyed by the quake. Here in Antakya, at least in the city center, I mean, it seems as if every other building uh, was leveled. And there are still um, scores, hundreds, uh, perhaps even thousands of people uh, trapped under the rubble. Rescue teams are having a very hard time um, reaching them and there simply isn't enough manpower and uh, there isn't enough resources uh, to try to cope with, with the scale of the disaster. 
and the word perhaps heard again and again was scale. So many buildings raised and as the week progressed, the numbers of dead and injured rising. We started the programme this morning saying that we were getting reports that nine and a half thousand people were confirmed dead. Now it's over 11,200 and you have to wonder where that figure is going to end up. Hundreds of thousands, possibly millions. That was Wednesday. The number of dead confirmed yesterday was 22,700 and set to rise. Many of the people affected in Turkey originally came from Syria. Here is Alex Thompson of Channel 4 News in eastern Turkey on the News at One. And of course there are those many thousands who've already been displaced as a result of the the, the war in Syria who've crossed into Turkey for, for refuge and, and now they're facing this this further d- disaster. Oh goodness me, yes. I mean, it would make your heart bleed. Right? We met um, some families, uh, Syrian families, who were bombed out of Aleppo four or five years back. They've been refugees um, in Nudai for the last so as I say, for the last four to five years, their houses here, they were housed, their houses here now destroyed. They're back on open ground. I mean, talk about a double whammy. Um, and these people offered us tea when we came to film them with this, this morning. One of the elderly women is out there covered in blankets, uh, just on a mattress uh, on, 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 I think, what was a kind of kid's playing field some time ago, a bit overgrown now. And she's there open to the elements night and day. And governments are sending what they can and international aid agencies are mobilising. On Drive Time, community worker Anne O'Rourke, who works with Syrian refugees in Turkey. It's refugees helping refugees, which is very unusual in any NGO. Sorry, I saw people today coming in with blankets. One woman said to me, uh, she has nothing. She had nothing. She'd hardly shoes on her. And she said, I have two blankets. I only need one. And she said, please send that to Syria for me. And I believe you have whole families or large numbers of one family arriving looking for help as well. Oh, constantly, constantly. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, there's, the numbers are, it's, it's endless. It's, it's just, it's just endless. The, the hate, the help that they need is endless. They, I mean, we had people today calling us from, from within Syria saying, we've no food, we've no water. We, we sent a truckload of blankets off this evening within Syria, you know, within the northern area. We got a, blank, a, a truckload of blankets delivered. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we have to do something now. It's no good waiting for a day or two. You know, it's an immediate, it's a crisis now. And the complexity of what they are facing is hard to comprehend. Temperatures are dropping, clean water and sanitation infrastructure is damaged and with it, the risk of cholera. Here is Goal Country Director for Turkey, Alec Militinovic on Morning Ireland. Syria was already battling an outbreak of cholera in some areas. Is, uh, is there a worry now of a further spread of disease as people are homeless, living in tented accommodation with no sanitation? They're multi-level risk. First and foremost, right now, there's no sanitation, lack of clean water. So we are afraid of cholera. And the second thing is that once the weather warms up, uh, unfortunately, we have people under the rubble that also cause the uh, potential risk. So Syria institutions, Syria 
both sides of the government controlled area and the opposition controlled area are impacted by this uh, earthquake. And we are afraid that there's going to be outbreak of cholera. So we are trying to work. As I said, we are doing the best we can to understand the needs and to provide assistance to people in emergency. But, but it's just the scale of this and the impact on all of us is is shocking still, even though it's the third day now, we are still shocked on the on the scale and, and level of destruction and the loss of life. It is almost too much to take in. And while our first impulse might be to gather up what we can, parcel it up, send it over, this may not actually be the best way. With Claire, Lucy Easthope, Professor of Risk and Hazard at Durham University. One thing I would ask people listening is don't feel helpless please donate but donate cash not not donated goods or blankets or jumpers please donate cash to the charities that are well established in the area yeah, it's interesting that you say that because even on social media this morning i saw some really well-meaning groups and and individuals asking is there a drop-off point in such and such a town where i can leave supplies to be taken to turkey and syria you're saying that's not what to do it's definitively not helpful with just a few exceptions occasionally for a very specific targeted need. It's probably one of the worst things that you can do. It's a thing that gets me a lot of a lot of grief on social media. You know, people say, What do you mean? This is such a lovely thing to do. What we, we have, we have some established supply routes. We can buy the things we need. If you've got things you want to get rid of, sell them and donate the cash to a recognized charity working in the area. So the hashtag is cash not stuff and I cannot express enough how important that is. Um, it, it All it does is create extra work for the responders on the ground. It comes from a place of heart, but do remember that not all help is good help after disaster. And while anger is growing in Turkey and Syria at the speed of the government response, some targeted local and international aid is beginning to get through. But as Concern Director in Turkey, Andy Buchanan, told Morning Ireland yesterday, this is an unprecedented disaster. Experienced uh, relief um, professionals are saying this is the worst uh, humanitarian disaster that they've uh, ever experienced. Uh, still bringing out um, bodies from under the collapsed buildings. Um, and the local people from that province are completely in shock. Um, many of them have already left and moved to other areas to find safety. Uh, the ones that are left are still waiting to find uh, their missing relatives under the buildings and, and to, to, to bury them. And while hopes for survivors are fading, there was one small miracle. A baby girl was found alive under the rubble in the arms of her mother in Afrin, northwest Syria. Both her parents and all four of her siblings were killed in the earthquake. Here's a doctor describing little Aya and the condition she was in on arrival. She arrived on Monday in such a bad state. She had knocks and bruises. She was cold and barely breathing. She has some distant family and until they come, I will treat her like one of my own. However, this is a disaster that will impact on Turkey and Syria for years to come. With Claire Andrew Lee, Professor of Public Health at the University of Sheffield. We're seeing these images. I mean, they're difficult to to watch the rescue operation, which is currently underway. But the long term impacts of this disaster, they're difficult to grapple with as well. But they will be dealt with for years and years to come by the people in, in both of these countries. Indeed, it's really tragic, isn't it? And what we know is, you know, within a matter of weeks, the, the, the world's public attention and media attention will move on to the next crisis somewhere else. 
But for the people affected here, as you say, it takes years to recover and rebuild afterwards. Um, and many of them will suffer long-term health consequences, whether it's mental health, post-traumatic stress disorder, or if they've had physical injuries and disabilities, they'll need all that rehabilitation for years afterwards. And for a region that has suffered so much, this seems almost too cruel. We will go back to finish with these words from goal director in Turkey, Alec Milutinovic. I just want every of your viewers and listeners to hug their families, kiss their loved ones and send thoughts and prayers to us because we really need it. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Lifeline yesterday. Do you hang it sideways or lengthways? We've always just popped it out like someone would do on St. Patrick's Day. And that, Neve, might have been your first mistake. She speaks of our national flag, which she pops out of the top window of her house in Bray. But she received a letter of complaint from a neighbour. It was a type letter. As an Irish national and a proud citizen of our country, I am appalled by the state of disrepair and discoloration to which you have allowed our, in italics, national flag and colours uh, deteriorate. So there... Now, Neve was hanging the flag to honour her great-grandfather who had fought in the Easter Rising. But when it came to flag etiquette, Joe Duffy had done his homework. Do you pop it out from its side? In other words, is a hanging side? You know, there's two little loopholes in it. Yeah, OK. There's a little rope yeah. that's hung out and she just, Molly drapes it, my daughter drapes it out of okay. window. OK, so it is, it is hanging sideways? Oh, yes. OK, yes. Well, well, that's not allowed. Neve, Neve, Neve. Anyway, I'm just... Right. Uh, no, you, you, you're fine. What you're doing is decent and honourable, but just in terms of the, the national flag, the national flag, the green, white and orange, uh, it should be rectangular, the width being twice its depth. The yeah. uh, three colours, green, white, are, are of equal size, vertically disposed. No flag or pennant should be flown above the national flag. You have nothing yeah. above it in your curtains. No. The national flag should not be draped on cars. Oh, God, I tell you, 90. Cars, trains, boats or other modes of transport. And, okay, here we go. In raising or lowering the national flag, uh, the national flag should not be allowed to touch the ground. While being hoisted at the half-mast, the flag should be first brought to the peak of the flagstaff and then lower to... I didn't know that. You don't go straight... I didn't know that. You don't go to straight half-mast. You go to full-mast and you come back down again to half-mast. Okay. It should again be brought to the peak of the staff before it is finally lowered. I didn't know that. When you're lowering a flag that's a half mast, you bring it up to full mast force and you come back down again. A flag is oh. a, 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 a flag is I'm going to have to go to flag school, yeah. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we're all in flag school, with the exception of Joe. A shocking amount of flag etiquette. And they went through a lot of it. But we will leave it there. Moving instead to beautiful Baltimore in beautiful West Cork, the home of yachts, chowder and more yachts. But in 1631, trouble. Des Eakin is the author of The Stolen Village, Baltimore and the Barbary Pirates. He spoke to Ryan about a raid that was led by one Morat Rice. He was a Dutchman. Uh, He uh, started off as a licensed pirate, a privateer. He ended up getting captured in Lanzarote and having a sincere conversion to Islam and it changed his life completely. He moved out to Morocco, married into royalty in uh, in Morocco, ended up in Algiers, very heavy uh, uh, personality. 
he was a celebrity because he had done a slave raid, a similar slave raid in Iceland. Uh, he sailed all the way up to Iceland to the Westman Islands and uh, took 400 slaves from there, brought them back to Algiers and they were sold in the slave market there. So he had form and he set sail for Ireland and the description of this nighttime raid sounds terrifying. In May of 1631 he sailed up um, with two ships bristling with guns, about 36 guns, 280 musketeers, a lot of uh, a lot of firepower. This was a serious mission. So they go up and they go first of all to the old head of Kinsale where they scoop up 10 fishermen from Dungarvan, get some intelligence from them and then go to Baltimore. Um, they um, moor their ship uh, in an inlet just beside the headland where the beacon is today. So they, in the dead of night, around sort of three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, they row round the headland and um, uh, they disembark and they fan out around the uh, an area called the Cove, which is about half a mile from Baltimore. And uh, in a coordinated attack, they sort of thrust their burning torches into the thatch of the uh, of the houses. When the people come running out, they surround them, shouting and screaming, waving their swords. But of course, they don't want to kill anybody. They want to uh, get live, healthy slaves to take back to uh, uh, to Algiers. Although two men did try to resist and they were just hacked down in the spot. So there were two fatalities. So they got um, 100 slaves out of that um, out of that raid, they tried to go further up into the main village, but they were deterred because somebody saw them and started battering a drum. And uh, the the pirates thought perhaps this is an army up there. Somebody else shot a few shots from a musket. So they only got a few more captives from the main village. Then they went down and set sail and uh, with 107 captives. After 38 days, they land in Algiers. The first thing they do is they get paraded around the streets of uh, of Algiers. This was a sort of custom when they got a big haul of captives. And the sights and sounds that they saw there, the colours, the, uh, the, the heat. The heat. And apparently, not in this case, but there were other captives who dropped dead of sheer terror just by the yeah. change in environment. Um, next thing, they went before the Pasha, the ruler of Algiers, who took one in eight of them for himself. Uh, that was his prerogative. Then they went on to the slave market where they were put up on sale uh, for public sale. Like um, cattle. I mean, this was like check exactly, the teeth yeah. and see how, what, mm-hmm. what value. If you were a, a carpenter, you'd be worth that amount of money. If you were mm-hmm. a beautiful woman, you, we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. every, everyone had a certain value. That's right. And in fact, we know uh, from the documents a couple of the prices that they fetched. There was uh, the uh, woman I talked about earlier who was heavily pregnant. She was uh, sold for £38. Another woman was sold for £18. So she was pregnant, so I imagine it must have been like a sort of buy one, get one free deal. A two for, yeah. <laughs> a two for one. Yeah. The others we don't have a particular uh, prices for, but most of them were sold for around 40 or something like that. I figure out that in today's values, it was about the price of a hatchback car, that sort of thing <laughs> that they were sold for, that a human being it's sold terrifying. for. Um, the, and, yeah, the, go on, please. Sorry, Joe, the most amazing thing is we're very lucky in that we have the account of a French priest who witnessed him yes. being put in sale, and he was absolutely just emotionally overwhelmed by this. He said there's daughters uh, ripped away from their fathers, uh, there was wives from their husbands, children all... Uh, ripped from their families and uh, he said that everyone in Algiers was in, in tears with what had happened to these people. And ransom might have been the only way out but only one woman could afford the fee. So those left behind started to make their lives in Algiers not that they had a choice. 
The men might have been galley slaves, some might have worked in the quarries and if you had a trade, you might get set up in your own shop for a weekly fee. And if you were a girl, well, it wasn't good. Young girls were bought as uh, investments for the futures market because uh, they could buy, just this was a very brutal time, they could buy a young girl for £50, sell her a few years later when she grew up at £100. So you got syndicates of people just exactly as you would get people buying racehorses today, yeah. investing in this. Um, then you got, um, the older women would have gone, would have been housemaids, um, domestic seamstresses. Younger women, sadly, would have ended up as uh, concubines or wives even uh, they were bought up because um, ever since the Icelandic slaves there was a great fashion in Algiers for fair-haired pale-skinned women and they were regarded as highly exotic and with all of that horror this next bit might surprise you a lot of them said when the boat came to collect them ultimately many many years later some of them probably said now you're grand I'm actually happy here look at this sun like why would I be heading back to Cork no offence to Cork but you know what I mean (laughs) I mean Ireland broadly speaking you know that they actually built a whole new life that's it that's the most intriguing thing about it that they came 15 years later with a shipload of money to try and uh, to negotiate their freedom and did so but they found there was only two people from Baltimore who got back again one was uh, the woman we were talking about earlier who had been pregnant earlier yes. she came back we don't know what happened to her after that sadly I'd love to know um, and, the, and another woman um, but most people didn't take it up now there's several reasons for that one as you say is um, uh, Stockholm home syndrome perhaps they identified more with their captors the other is that a lot of people had converted in which case they ruled themselves out of being uh, ransomed under the under the terms. Um, the other one was that some people had got married and they uh, just didn't want to leave their new uh, families. But a lot of them too, as you say, just this isn't too bad here. We'll just go and stay, we'll stay where we are. Very interesting. Des Eakin with Ryan. Surface attention, the theme for Sunday's keywords and this offering from Kevin Brew. Because we do love a good edit here on Playback. Rewinding to 25 years ago. To when I was in radio college. To when I was learning to edit on a reel-to-reel tape machine. As an angst-ridden, mature student worried about the future, my hands steadied to the lovely task of editing quarter-inch tape, of lacing the rust-coloured tape around the spools, of listening to the tape as it travelled past the playhead so that a message, printed in magnetic particles, was translated into something I could listen to, a friendly voice. Once upon a time, a man coughed, He coughed mid-sentence into a microphone, but with my trusty blade, I could make the cut. I could make that cough not happen. Then I heard a sentence that would be better at the end, so I cut out that piece of tape and wore the sentence around my neck, fast-forwarding the conversation to a moment marked in white pencil and stitching in the perfect ending, which had failed to take place in real life. I recycled the tape a couple of times so that you could sometimes hear a muffled echo of previous interviews under the most recent one, a ghost from another recording ceremony, a voice of protest against the callous decision to reuse this tape. 
When we listened to very old tapes, there were blemishes. These were caused by something called print-through. Particles on adjacent layers of the tape became unstable, so that when the tape was played, you'd hear the person speaking, but also an echo of what they just said, or what they were about to say, as if they were being prompted or heckled by themselves. These echoes caused by flaws on the tape felt like the workings of the mind. The doubts underneath what we're saying out loud. The memories printed on other memories. From keywords back when we did it with chalk and razors. Oh yes. And more sounds with the Darcy, who has done a deep dive into the oceans of the Arctic and the Antarctic, while well, the BBC have. But the sounds are amazing. The sound of the Ross Seal, it's like, it, it sounds computer generated. Like, if you were up there or down there, I don't know if that's from the Antarctic or the, the, the Arctic, but if it, wherever you were, you'd think you were being, you know, the Earth was being invaded by aliens, but that, that's a natural sound from the Ross Seal. The ice sings. It does sing. Okay. And there's his ice collapsing. Whoa. Sounds like thunder or even gunshots. That's ice collapsing. Amazing. These are all sounds you wouldn't have heard before ever in your life. And the mink whale. Wow, he's cool. <laughs> it sounds like he's out clubbing. Like, you know, the mink whale. Sounds good. Look, look, watch, watch this. Yeah, hands in the air, mean quail, or, or fins. Quite the wee raver. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Arena, singer Lisa O'Neill on the power and magic of daydreaming. It's sort of practising being a dreamer and being active with that dreaming, you know, doing something with it. Um, and I suppose I found myself doing that naturally years ago, but now, if in the last 10 years... It is my full time work to to write songs and yeah, you do get good at there's an awful lot of guilt that comes with that daydreaming and take maybe the small little things taking your attention, like a behavior of a few birds, crows or seagulls or something on the street. And I often think you're daft, you're an awful waster. But then uh, later on. That 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 little memory has is you know done something within me and it comes out in another way. So <laughs> I've been very reflective in the last couple of years about the process, um, and it's it's a difficult road because say yeah, a dreamer in school does not get rewarded for being a dreamer. You have to really have the right support around you for you know parents and. Uh, teachers to believe that there's something to that child who's staring out the window. And for O'Neill, the dreaming and the process has led her to a new album. All of this is chance. 
I suppose in some ways, Lisa, the album is, it's full of references to nature. It's full of references. As you said to me when, when you handed me the album, you said, it's the cosmos. It, it is full of very big references in, in, in that way. Yeah, I mean, we are nature and I'm finding that in in full scope for myself over the last few years that like, you know, my existence um, is really no different to that little dandelion seeds potential. And how does that make you feel? Tiny, but in a good way. You know, like the sense that you might get when you look up at the on a starry night out in the country, and you you feel that the planet Earth is so tiny and you're so tiny, and it makes the worries of the world a little less. Do you know what? We've very little control. Just enjoyed this, this stillness right now. And I wish I could feel like that every moment of the day. I don't. But when I capture that moment in my heart, like I like to try and put it down. And then this by way of introduction to a song called Goodnight World. When I was listening to the lyrics of this, um, and sometimes, I don't know if you did this as a kid, where you'd say goodnight to everybody and everything. And you might start with, you know, your socks at the bottom of the bed and work (laughs) your way downstairs to your family and outwards from there to wherever it was going to give you. You could even end up with Goodnight Universe. Did you do that as a kid? Because it strikes me that's what's in this song. I think I did, maybe, yeah, little things, but you could be saying goodnight to each of your ten toes and things like that. <laughs> I think it's very common, but it's also a very beautiful thing to recognise um, saying goodnight to other th- than just people, but, yeah, things that you love, like your teddy bear or your curtains or <laughs> your socks. <and> Sean. <laughs> Good night, stars, good night, sky. Lisa O'Neill with Goodnight World as heard on Arena. Absolutely beautiful. 
and you'd just love to be able to leave it there. But no, onwards we go. And this week, so former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern back in the Fianna Fáil tent. Morning Ireland brought us this. Can you explain what is it about going back for Fianna Fáil? Is this a, a form of rehabilitation in some ways? You're out of the party and you're back in now. No, I, I, I don't have to rehabilitate myself anywhere, um, <laughs> uh, thankfully. You might, I don't. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I have 41 years uh, in the party, in the local organisation. Uh, and needless to say, all my old friends, uh, unfortunately a lot of them are gone, even the last 10 years in, the, in that, in that organisation. But you know, they, they want me back. But my contribution, hopefully, will be working with the Taoiseach, with the Taunister, with the, you know, as I did with Simon Coveney, you know, trying to work and get the institutions in the north and get that right. That, that's where I see my role. I don't, if, if I don't I, see myself as a role anyway. If asked to be anyway. a candidate again, would, would you want, if, if your party came to you and said, we need you for the RS in 25? That, that's a, listen, it's too far away. I mean, I, I, I honestly, in, in greatest respect, it, it's too far away. But The RS, too far away, but getting ever closer? Anya teased that one out with political correspondent Paul Cunningham. And there was um, a familiar ambiguity uh, in his answers on the presidency, not quite a no, uh, while saying he was back as an ordinary member. Your sense whether that's teasing and enjoying the speculation or, or, or could a presidential run from Mr Hearn, could that be a serious possibility from a veteran campaigner? On the membership issue, I think it certainly was a closing of a circle. You mentioned it several times. It's 41 years he'd been a member of O'Donovan, Russell Common, and he wanted to go back. So on that, absolute clarity. When it comes to a tilt at the Oris, this is some um, speculation that Bertie Ahern, long-time politician, could have killed Stone dead. And so he's left it hanging there. Will he, won't he? He didn't say he was going to go for it, but he didn't say he, he wasn't going to go for it. And that's something only he's been saying for more than a year now. Um, it's too far away. I'll have a look at it. So there's a couple of options. One is that he is doing that. He's keeping his options open and considering to go for it. Or the other is that he's maybe just enjoying and um, teasing people at it. I think ultimately he's going to have to decide, uh, um, confront what that campaign would be. And we know two things. One is that presidential campaigns are far more about the person and character rather than any per, uh, you know, a policy given the limitations of the office. And that does mean that an awful lot of what happened in Bertie Ahern's past politically and more particularly in relation to the Mahan Tribunal would come back to the fore. So the calculation he has, he has to make is, is that what he wants to do? And from what I hear from Fianna Fáil members, from Fianna Fáil people in the Oireachtas, their sense is that he probably won't ultimately. But back in the party, he must certainly is. And fellow party member Barry Cowan, for one, was happy to lay out the bedroll. He spoke to Cormac on drive time, who took him back to the Mahan Tribunal and that resignation. There was a furore at the time and Michal Martin uh, said be, uh, in, in moves within the party to expel Bertie Ahern from Fianna Fáil at the time, he said it's uh, a matter of profound per- personal and professional regret to see confirmed in this report, the Mahan Tribunal report, the extent to which Bertie Ahern fell short of the standard of personal behaviour which is expected of the holders of high office. And it was said by members of Fianna Fáil at the time uh, that perhaps the office was demeaned in some way. I mean, is that your opinion still? Well, members of Fianna Fáil may have said that then and they were perfectly entitled to do so, as I said to you, because we were obliged, having set up a, a tribunal of inquiry, to respect and appreciate and honour its, its its findings, but its findings, you know, if you want to be if you want to be 
nitpicking at you was was somewhat almost inconclusive. But apart no, from no, that, sorry, at all, it, it was but, it was but emphatically no, you know, no, conclusive in terms of saying that uh, Bertie Hearn wasn't truthful in terms of his explanation regarding it significant amounts of money. It questions in relation to his truthfulness, but I'm not going to get into that here now as much as you would like to do so, as much as you would like to tarnish the man's reputation even further 10 years later. I don't want to tarnish the man's reputation whatsoever. I'm just accepting, I'm just asking you if you accept the findings of the Mahan Tribunal, you say nothing has changed, but yet you welcome him back to Fianna Fáil. I'm just wondering why. I respected and appreciated his decision to resign as Taoiseach, to resign as leader of Fianna Fáil because he felt at that time the evidence he was giving to the tribunal was getting in the way of the work of government. The evidence was getting in the way of the workings of Fianna Fáil. Mm-hmm. And he did an honourable uh, thing at that time. Okay, if you say and that's the meantime, but, but There was, as you can imagine, text reaction. Kira says, I'm so sorry and angry at Micheál Martin inviting uh, Ahern back to Fianna Fáil. Won't be voting Fianna Fáil uh, again. Uh, a listener says Bertie Hearn is back in Fianna Fáil in time for Cheltenham. Well, some people texting obviously in support of Bertie as well. Moira says Falcher Rash Bertie. Bertie Hearn deserves the respect of the people. He's given life to helping others and treats everyone equal no matter wh- who or what they are in his 70s and working as hard as ever and not publicising it unlike others, says Moira. Keep your text coming. 5155. Meanwhile with Ray, the word. Not a biblical reference but part of a Channel 4 offering from the 90s. When you meet somebody in a pub, how, how do you explain it to them? Oh, I, I mean, it was a music magazine show, really, with uh, and it started off quite cultured, although a little bit cheeky. And then as uh, I, I worked with, you know, what uh, some of Britain's finest public schools have thrown up, and you've seen what they've done to our country, uh, they kind of started introducing what they thought of as, you know, kind of wild stuff like people eating worm sandwiches and pubes on crackers and all the rest of it mm. you know turned it turning it into a bit of a jeremy kyle hellscape because we started off at six o'clock at night mm. and then they realized that you know regional accents and nipples belong after the uh, watershed so they moved us to 11 o'clock on show 12 but it but it was quite funny and so almost bizarre the arguments that i'd have with them you know because i've done eight years of music radio and you know covering bands as they're up and coming so then i'd walk into like this meeting room with tarquin sebastian and tristram <laughs> and you know I, I felt like the gardener off downtown abbey going i think we should plant the roses in april this year sir <laughs> Nipples in the watershed and points if you guessed the presenter, Terry Christian. And as the music booker, they got some pretty big acts, starting with Oasis. We gave them their first show. Wow. We weren't one of the first. Sorry, I had to their argue first. the toss right. for six weeks to get them on. Mary J. Blige, first yeah. ever TV in Europe. Nirvana, doing Smells Like Teen Spirit. Wow. You know, Snoop Doggy Dog, Public Enemy. You know, everything. There was only, we even had live guests on, Whitney Houston. And then there was one great show where there was me, Jar Wobble, uh, Boy George and Sinead O'Connor yeah. all sitting on the couch together. And I thought, there's not a drop of English blood between us. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like an Irish convention. Both his parents are from Dublin, so he gets away with that one. But let's go back to Whitney. More of Whitney, please. Yeah, we had Whitney Houston on all the way through the show. She even got given Scylla Black's dressing room, which nobody was allowed to have, you know. <laughs> it was like, step inside, love. Oi. Not my dressing room. Can you remember what a rider was? Was it white lilies and, and M&Ms with no blue ones? Or what Do you know was it? what? She, she, she was fantastic, Whitney Houston. She wasn't deaverish at all in that mm. way. I mean, she was only like 23 or 24 at the time. She was actually the biggest star on the planet. 
but she had a, she was great interacting with the audience, you know, in the breaks and chatting to them, you know, really down to earth. She'd had a bit of a to-do with Boy George, well, everyone had, but, you know, they made friends on the show. Right, right, right. It was quite bizarre to think about it. And as a programme, the word really was, well, bizarre. And this was not always manufactured. I was watching some clips just to get my head back in, you know, the word sort of world. <laughs> like, it, it, it must have, you must have, at the, you know, when the end credits rolled some nights, you must have went, what happened there? <laughs> what happened there? Because it's, it's just <laughs> oh, yes. crazy stuff. Well, we, we had uh, Sean Ryder, and I, I put this bit in the show where he literally, you know, he was on the show and I knew that he was, you know, he was high on. I think heroin at the time and he just suddenly wandered up we had uh, Zippy and Rainbow this kind of you know house version of or techno version of the Rainbow theme with Bungle and Zippy up on stage and he just wandered up and I just remember thinking where the hell's he going and he just wandered up there and people thought we'd set it up next thing you know he's playing the bongos and trying to zip Zippy's mouth up or unzip it (laughs) Derry Christian with Ray Ryan, meanwhile, was adopting a new interviewing technique. See what you think. Here he is with CNN anchor and correspondent Max Foster. And the silences, yeah, a little uncomfortable. I'm going to say a name and I want you to answer in one word your thoughts on the oh person. How that, that's really mean, isn't it? Yeah. Could totally caught you on the hop yeah. here. Give, do you want to give it a go for a few Why names? Not? Let's see if we go. Uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, Taylor Swift. In a word. In a word. Yeah. Um, you got it, Funny. Nice. Funny. That'll do fine. Uh, Tony Blair. Um, uh, elusive. <laughs> uh, Dolly Parton. Uh, just amazing. That'll do. George Lucas. Very serious or serious. Serious will do. Uh, Michael Caine. Um, personable. Lovely. Uh, Elton John. Silence is the answer. I'll take that as a word. Um, well, can I say more? He yeah. wasn't as confident as I... As you David Furnish was, it. like, very impressive. OK, so, uh, uh, Bill Gates? Uh, nerdy. It's, oh, perfect. It's, uh, that's a great compliment. Steve Jobs? <laughs> Passionate. And finally, Donald Trump? Confusing. <laughs> Both efficient and revealing might it be the future. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week and we will finish with a song from this legend.